0: Thankful for uh, Pastor Charlie being here and preaching the word last weekend while I was gone on vacation, and he mentioned maybe that I was trying to grow out a beard to see if I could match him, and sometimes you just got to know when you're outmatched. Um, So he's going to own the best facial hair on the pastoral team award for the time being. But I was grateful for him preaching, and I was grateful for some time away with my family, and one uh, highlight of that time was my daughter turned seven years old and uh, some of you guys, it's like your, your birthdays are painful because that number keeps getting bigger. Um, you know, she's at a different point in her life where it's exciting every year. She feels like, you know, she's 10 years older, and it kind of feels like she is 7 going on 17. Um, but we had a great time celebrating there, and one of the gifts that my wife and I got for her, we got her a boxed set of the Chronicles of Narnia. And One of our favorite things to do is read together, and she's kind of become aware of some movie versions of those books, and so she's been really into it, so I'm like, Let me teach you a valuable lesson in life, daughter. The book is always better than the movie. So we started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe together, and I was struck by some things there early on in the story. You're probably familiar with the story, but the youngest of the four kids, Lucy, kind of stumbles into the wardrobe and goes to Narnia and meets Mr. Tumnus and has tea with him. And when she comes back, none of her siblings believe her, right? She's trying to tell them, no, this really happened. And they're saying, no, 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 we don't believe you. And it becomes awkward because she is so insistent that it really happened. And the rest of them think, no, it is impossible. That can't happen. That doesn't happen. And uh, so they go, the two oldest siblings, they go to the professor. That's the house they're staying at. They go to the professor's office and they talk to him because they're concerned. And uh, they, they say, we don't understand why our sister is saying this. And he asked them, well, is your, does your little sister normally lie? And they say, no, that's the thing. She always tells the truth. We've never caught her lying before. And so then they get to their next concern, which is, what if she's going crazy? Which... I mean, that's not an unreasonable thing to think, right? If I went around telling you today that, hey, I spent most of yesterday afternoon in a magical land having tea with a magical creature, you'd put me away, right? Like, that's not uh, unrealistic. But he's like, hey, take one look at this girl, and you can tell she's clearly not crazy. And so they're shocked by what they're hearing from the professor, because the professor's actually teaching them, well, if she's not lying, because she's not a liar, and she's not crazy, then Maybe she's telling the truth. Because that's a shocking claim that this girl was saying. I went to a magical land through a wardrobe, right? That's that's crazy. But the professor taught them, well, if she's not lying and she's not crazy, she's probably telling the truth. And reading that in that book struck me because it is C.S. Lewis who so eloquently put it in one of his nonfiction books, a similar principle about the teachings of Jesus Christ. That you have to examine the teachings of Jesus, and either he is lying, or he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Because Jesus, and we've seen this now repeatedly going through the Gospel of John, he makes some claims. Some, from a human perspective, outlandish claims. And we need to look at them, and that's why we see there's so much confusion in response. Because people think, no, that can't possibly be true. When really the only options are he is a liar or he is a lunatic or he is the Lord. And I think as we dig into another amazing claim of Christ today, the conclusion we need to come to is he is the Lord. And in the midst of a world that is confused and like it was then a world that is more hostile to Jesus Christ, we need to look to him for answers and satisfaction. So take your Bibles, please, and open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 37 to 52 today, but we've been going through John uh, chapter 7 and it's all revolving around this Jewish holiday, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, where people would gather at Jerusalem and they would remember their time in the wilderness. And even they would construct booths and live in them for the week to remember when they lived in tents in the wilderness. And at the beginning of the chapter, we see Jesus' brothers telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, this is your moment. Go to Jerusalem. When everybody's there, show them what you can do. And Jesus says, no, I'm not trying to be popular. I'm trying to be faithful. And now's not the time for that. But then he goes, and in the middle of the feast, he teaches. And again, he makes strong claims, and there's a lot of confusion in response. And one thing we saw was actually most of the response isn't that people don't want to believe it in their head, and they don't understand it. It's that they don't want to believe it from their heart. They don't want to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And then today things shift again. If you look at verse 37, it says, on the last day of the feast. So clearly there's some passage of time between what we looked at last time and this week. But let's look here at these verses. And I'm going to start just with the first few verses, kind of the first scene on this last day of the feast. Let me read verses 37 to 39. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus, he makes this claim, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and I'll give you living water. In fact, there'll be a spring of living water flowing from your heart. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of John, this should start to sound familiar. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus is there. The the, the Samaritan woman comes to the well. Jesus asks her for a drink and then says, If you really knew who I was, you would be asking me for water, and I would give you living water so that you would never thirst again. Or in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, what does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. These are images now that have been used throughout John. And each time we see Jesus is playing off these powerful images of hunger and thirst, really talking about satisfaction. I am the one who can satisfy your soul. So let's put it down this way for point number one this morning. If you're taking notes, which might be a great way for you to follow along. Point number one this morning, look to Christ for fulfillment. Look to Christ for fulfillment. And I'm using that word intentionally, fulfillment, because one, it makes us think of this idea of satisfaction. Where can I find satisfaction? You're going to find it in Christ. That's where you will find fulfillment. But what's another way we use the word fulfillment? Well, when you're thinking maybe about prophecy or symbolism, that something comes along to fulfill the prophecy. And I want you to see here that Jesus even is talking more than just about fulfillment and satisfaction for your soul. He is presenting himself as the fulfillment of a specific ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. And you think think about the holidays we have here in America. I mean, think of Christmas, right? There's there's so many things that are done there that are symbolic. We have a Christmas tree. We have lights, and we present presents, right? Well, this was a Jewish holiday, and everyone would come together, and there were symbolic things that happened that meant something. And there was one specific thing that happened every day at the Feast of Tabernacles that had to do with water. Every day, the high priest and a whole procession would go down to the Pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem, and they would have this you know, fancy golden cup that they would fill up with water and then they would take it back up to the Temple Mount in this, you know, ceremonial procession. And if you've ever been to Israel or when things open up and we can take a group from our church, you will see when I'm saying you go up from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount, I ain't lying, right? It is a hike, right? And you are going up the whole time. The Pool of Siloam is at the lowest point. Thankfully, usually the buses meet us there because it's such a hike and it's Pool of is not the greatest part of town today. But anyways, that they would hike up to the Temple Mount in this procession. And there would be, be singing and rejoicing as this would happen. And even if you've seen things from the Feast of Tabernacles, one thing you've seen is that they hold these things in their hand. Like one is this, these three different branches tied together and then a piece of citrus fruit and the other to kind of celebrate the, the harvest. And they do that to this day. And they were doing that from before the time of Christ. And this would be where they would all have those things and they would take the cup back up, they would be singing psalms and they would pour it out on the altar in a ceremony before the Lord. And even from the Jewish writings, we know what they meant by that. It was one, to symbolize the provision of God providing water through the rock. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is all about them wandering in the wilderness. And how did God provide water? Through the rock and they remember that. But it was also to symbolize something they were still waiting for in the future. It was to symbolize the coming outpouring of the Spirit that they were expecting in the last days that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And now that should start ringing some bells on a few levels. One, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about water from the rock, and it says the rock was Christ. So Jesus is presenting himself as the fulfillment of that. The water of the rock... That was talking about me. And then the other thing, the outpouring of the Spirit in verse 39, that's what John says he's talking about. He's talking about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And we know the rest of the story. We know in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has been glorified through his death and resurrection and then his ascension back into heaven, the apostles are praying in an upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And there's tongues of fire on their heads and they speak in tongues and thousands of people get saved and the holy spirit comes and, and all of this is fulfilling even Peter in Acts chapter 2 when he preaches he says hey this is fulfilling the prophecy in Joel when it said in the last days my spirit is going to come upon you and Jesus is pointing to all of these things now now you see this scenes maybe a little more dramatic than when we just read the words off the page when we understand what was going on in this ceremony Jesus is, it says, he's crying out. He's in this crowd, potentially even as this ceremony is going on. And he's basically saying, Hey, everybody, this whole ceremony, it's talking about me. Come to me, and I will give you drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says, He says, as the scripture has said. And it appears that he's not necessarily quoting one particular verse, but He's talking about a theme that's all over the Old Testament, and I want to show you just a couple places, both of them in the book of Isaiah. So maybe keep your finger in the book of John and go back to the book of Isaiah. And go to Isaiah chapter 12. It's a very short chapter in Isaiah, and even in our revival from the Bible reading, we're going to get to this chapter later this week, but we've got to go through Song of Solomon first. So, you know, buckle your seatbelts for that one. Um, but Isaiah chapter 12, let me just read a few of the verses for you. It's, it's a song that they're talking about in the future. It says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And then check this out, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Guess what the people would sing as they were going in this processional from the Pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount. Guess what one of the verses they were singing was? Isaiah twelve three. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus is referring very possibly back to this verse saying, It's talking about me. I will give you a well of living water, a well of salvation in your heart. That's what I will do. If you also go to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. And I think we've looked at this passage when we talked about John 4 and even John 6. It's a very powerful image, even of the satisfaction that God offers those who come to him. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come everyone who thirsts. for David. And you see, God, he's offering in these passages a sense of satisfaction. He's basically saying, hey, the world is a famine, and you can go try to fill yourself up on that good luck, but come to me, and I will give you a feast, a feast that will satisfy your soul, and a feast that will be free to you. It's an invitation, and we see that. Jesus even telling the woman at the well, who clearly was, uh, she had had so many husbands, she was as we would say today, maybe looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And she was looking maybe for a relationship to satisfy her. And Jesus is saying, No, only I can do that. Or even in John 6, it's clear people were looking for satisfaction in, in ritual, thinking, well, if I do the right things and do the right rituals, I can have eternal life. And he's saying, No, no, no. You can't find it in, in rituals it can only be found in me. So whether you're looking for satisfaction in worldly pleasure or earthly spiritual rituals, it's not going to work. It's only something that Jesus can give. And he says, I'll give you living water, which even that we kind of think of living water as some spiritual thing. No, it's actually very practical, but we miss it because we can all just walk into the kitchen, flip on the faucet and boom, water comes out. Well, guess what? They were about you know, almost 2,000 years away from that in the time of Christ. Okay? They, they didn't have that. They had to go to the well, and there were, there were different places you could get water. One was from cisterns, right? And you can see this. If you go to Israel, they would build even all these you know, channels that every time it would rain, they would get as much water to go into the cistern, and they would have this water there when they needed it. But what was better than a cistern was when you had a spring. Because a cistern would fill up, but it could eventually run dry. A spring was always just pumping out water. And that's what Jesus, that's, that was the idea of living water, moving water. And Jesus is saying, I will give you water, not just once, but I will give you a spring continually pouring forth water. Jesus is saying, if you come to me, your soul is no longer a cup that needs to be filled. It's a river flowing from your heart. When I was in Sunday school, we used to sing this song, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And that's what this is talking about. And that is what Jesus is saying should be true of a believer. And it sounds good, but I want us to really think today, what does that mean? I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Well, first, let me talk about fulfillment. I almost didn't even use that word because I think People in our culture think of that all wrong. As soon as we start thinking about fulfillment, we start thinking about me. What do I want? What are my hopes? What are my dreams? And Jesus repeatedly tries to put that on its head. And he's saying, as long as you think fulfillment is about you, you're never going to find it. And he's saying, if you, if you look for fulfillment, and you're doing that through worldly pleasures or religious rituals, you're not going to find it, and you're going to miss me. But he's saying... If you put yourself aside and come to me, you will find fulfillment. It's opposite from how he's saying the world works. He says, if you try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's a different meaning of fulfillment. But what does it look like? John tells us in verse 39, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was offering. And we see in the Old Testament, and remember, testament is just another word for covenant. Under the Old Covenant... The Holy Spirit was all over the place, empowering people to do all kinds of things. But clearly, even from the Old Testament and then what we see in the New, there was something new and unique about the way the Spirit indwells believers now after the cross, after Acts chapter 2. That those who put their faith in Christ, the Spirit comes and lives inside of every believer. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament. The New Covenant is talked about in a few passages. One of them is Ezekiel chapter 36, He's saying, when you put your faith in Christ, it's not just that he forgives your sin, he cleanses you, but he also gives you his spirit so that now you have the power to live differently, to actually obey what he says. And that should start to change our lives. And we see that clearly. One more passage I want to turn you to on this first point, Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. If I have God's spirit in me, and now I've got this river of living water flowing out of my heart. What should that look like? Well, there's no passage in scripture I think that is clearer than this one on hey, if you've really got the spirit within you, this is what it's not going to look like and this is what it is going to look like. You're probably familiar with Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. Maybe even like next to the fruit bowl in your kitchen, you have some Thing on the wall that has all this fruit. and But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And it, it explains. But there's another list that I guarantee you, you don't have hanging on the wall in your house anywhere that starts in verse 19. It says, But the now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then we get to the good list, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is saying, hey, if you've really come to Christ, you're going to see these works of the flesh, they don't dominate your life anymore. But now we're going to see something different. We're going to see the fruit of the Spirit. And I want everybody today to examine themselves and to look at these Lists, And if you look at this and you say, my life is all about this first list and not about this second list, then the problem you have is that you have not come to Christ. You don't have a river of life flowing out of you. You are a broken cistern and you're looking in all the wrong places to try to fill that up. If you look at your life and say, no, it's dominated by sexual immorality, anger, drunkenness, that that is what defines me. It says right there, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you think, yikes, that's talking about me, the solution is not, well, then try really hard to stop doing those things and try really hard to do this fruit of the spirit stuff. No, it's you need Christ. You need him to sprinkle you with clean water to cleanse you from your sin, and you need him to put his spirit within you so that you will stop doing those things and you'll have a new power that leads you to live a life of love, joy, and peace, and so on. Jesus is offering a satisfaction and a change and a new life that nothing else in the world can match. That's the gospel, and he's offering it for free. That he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose again, we can be forgiven for all of the works of our flesh. And we can be cleansed and we can be changed. But there's only one place to find that. And that is in Jesus Christ. And if you have any doubts about whether you know Christ and you see that difference in your life, don't leave here today without talking to somebody. You can talk to me. You can talk to Pastor Charlie. We would love to talk to you about that. But I think for all of us, even if you look at this and you say, man, I praise God that he has saved my soul. I have a satisfaction in Christ that I can't get anywhere else. I want all of us to be challenged as we think about the power of Jesus' teaching here. I mean, he's saying something incredible. He's saying that whoever, come, whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you're a believer, can you honestly say that about yourself? man. Out of my heart is just flowing a river of life. And again, that sounds really good. What should that look like? It should look like the fruit of the Spirit. That's what that spring should be pumping out of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you're a believer here today, I want you to spend some time this week thinking about that list. Thinking about that fruit and asking, do I see those in my life? And maybe even pick a few of those that you read and you're like, "Mm, you know what? I know there needs to be more patience in my life. And to make that something that you're praying about and to see if you're not seeing patience in your life, we need to have a better answer than just, all right, I'm going to be more patient this week. I mean, hey, that's a good start. There should be resolve and effort in our Christian life. But we need to see, hey, if I'm lacking some of this fruit, part of my problem is I'm not looking to Christ. To be that source of satisfaction for my soul. If I'm lacking patience, it's not just that I'm not trying hard enough, it's I'm not thinking enough about Christ. If I'm impatient about my circumstances, I'm forgetting that Christ, the one who is making this claim, is in control of everything, that he is on the throne right now. And so I can trust him and be patient. And also, if I'm losing my patience, I'm forgetting, hasn't Christ been, you know, maybe a little bit patient with me? Okay, understatement of the century. A lot patient with us. Christ has been more patient with me than I'm ever going to need to be to anybody else. And if I'm seeing a lack of patience in my life, I need to look to Christ, and that's going to start changing the way I think. Or if I'm saying, man, I wish there was more joy in my life. Well, try doing this. Wake up every day and just say, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful, and you'll be a lot more joyful. No, that's not going to work, right? You need to look to Christ. And you need to remember, okay, because of Christ, because he died on the cross for my sins, because he rose again, I have so many things in my life now that can't be taken away from me. Because of what Jesus did, my sins are forgiven. 100% debt paid, gone. That's a reason to be joyful, I think. If my faith is in Christ, I have a future waiting for me in heaven forever. And there will be no sickness. There will be no bad economy. There will be no COVID. There will be no elections because Jesus will be king. And that's the way it will be forever. I have a reason to be joyful. And so I want you to spend some time this week looking at this list and even praying about the ones that you think, man, yeah, I want to see improvement there and start thinking, okay, what am I not seeing about Christ that would result in more goodness or more faithfulness in my own life. If we're believers. We should be living out the reality that there's a river of life flowing out of our souls because we've found Christ and in Him we have everything that we need and He has put His Spirit into our hearts and our lives should be full of love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus makes a radical claim and one that should radically affect our lives. But again, just like we talked about in the Chronicles of Narnia, a radical claim, people are like, whoa, I don't know if I can handle that. And that's what we see in this passage. Let's move on to the next section. After Jesus makes this claim, there's all kinds of different opinions. And it's really interesting to look at. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. All kinds of different things getting thrown around. And it's interesting, uh, none of them are really wrong. First, people say this is the prophet. This is referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 16 which Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. He's saying, no, God's going to raise up a prophet that's going to speak to you and you need to listen to him. And I believe, and most biblical scholars say this is referring to Jesus Christ. So, they're not wrong when they say this is the prophet. Others said this is the Christ. And remember, Christ is the same word as Messiah. Same word, two different languages. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. And clearly, that is accurate. Jesus is the Christ. Now, it's, it doesn't seem that people understood at that point that the prophet and the, the Christ were going to be the same person. We understand that with the whole of Scripture and 2,000 years of hindsight. And then there's another response that's not wrong. When they say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Isn't isn't the Messiah supposed to come from the line of David and from the city of Bethlehem? Is that correct? Correct. But it's interesting. John clearly, it seems, expects his readers to know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. And John loves, you know, irony in some of his stories. So he's putting this in there. These people saying, isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? When he's like, (laughs) guess what? He is. He did come from Bethlehem, but they don't understand that about Christ. And so there's this division, and this division is so strong that it even seems that some, not just of the religious leaders, but the people want to arrest him. So despite Jesus's clear teaching, despite his miracles, there was a lot of confusion, even division. And guess what? Until the end, when Jesus is here reigning on a new heavens and new earth, there always will be. Point number two this morning, expect a divided response to Jesus. Expect a divided response to Jesus. Jesus is one of the most, I would even argue, the most beloved figures in the history of the world. But that does not mean that he is correctly understood, and that does not mean that he is not controversial. Because a lot of people, the Jesus that they like isn't the Jesus that's right here. It's not the Jesus that they're really grappling with the claims that he makes. There's a lot of people looking for a fourth option, not liar, lunatic, Lord. They've got, oh, he was a good guy, right? Well, if you really look at what he said, that's not an option because that's not what he was claiming to be. His claims are strong and they demand a response. And really the problem a lot of people have isn't with their heads and understanding it, it's with their hearts and agreeing with it And accepting it. And even I want you to be encouraged in this when you share your faith, which is something that's the whole point of the Gospel of John is that people would believe. And that's the whole reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, so that more people can get saved. So we should be sharing our faith. But as you do that, I don't want you to get discouraged when everybody you share your faith with doesn't put their trust in Christ. Let me ask you a question Are you gonna be a better evangelist than Jesus? Sorry, but I don't think so, right? Your teaching isn't going to be as clear and as powerful, and uh, I don't think you're going to be, like, beating the 5,000 anytime soon, okay? So you're probably not going to be as persuasive of, of an evangelist as Jesus. How did the crowds respond to Jesus? Well, in John 6, a bunch of them walked away. In John 7, some of them want to arrest him. So if some of the people reject your presentation of the gospel, you're in good company, Okay? And in fact, if some people are very hostile to your presentation of the gospel, it might actually say that, you know what, you're doing it right. Because it should be so strong that some people are like, whoa, no, 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 I can't accept that. Don't expect everyone to respond. There's going to be a divided response. Jesus, as he presents himself, is controversial. But many people will believe. Keep putting him out there. Keep telling people about Christ. Christ. And even we see how powerful his teaching is in in that last section. Let's look at verses 45 to 52 now. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now Nicodemus... Who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they, the rest of the Pharisees, replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so it starts with these officers. Last time we looked at John 7, the the leaders, they send officers to go and arrest Jesus. And now they come back empty handed. And I guess somewhat understandably, the Pharisees are a little upset. Hey, you had one job, and Jesus isn't you Why didn't you arrest him? And we need to understand, if you're picturing these people going to arrest Jesus as kind of like these mercenary thugs, the brute squad, so to speak, that's probably not who they were. They were probably trained in the temple. They were probably Levites who were actually trained in the law. And they go, and they hear Jesus speak and they can't bring themselves to arrest him it's almost like you know that situation with the professor and lucy and the chronicles of narnia they're listening to jesus and they're like i don't think this guy is lying and i don't think this guy is crazy there must be something to what this man is saying no one they say ever spoke like this man and again that's something i want to encourage you the teaching of jesus is powerful And there are many, many people in our culture that have never actually interacted with the teachings of Jesus. They've only heard about him. And that's why I would even encourage you as you share your faith, one of the most powerful things you can do is put the words of Christ in front of other people. That's why I would even say one thing I would encourage you to do is invite people to read the Gospel of John so that they have to encounter these claims of Jesus for themselves because there is a power in the words of Christ. But look at the response of the Pharisees. And remember, these are like the leading academics of their day. And the best they can come up with is, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Is that a very strong argument? Not really. Do they go, well, no, you can't believe in Jesus because he's saying this which isn't true and this which isn't true and this which isn't true. No, they can't point to anything that Jesus is saying that is wrong. All they can point to is, well, none of us have believed in him. That's circular reasoning 101. Well, you shouldn't believe in him because none of us have believed in him, and none of us have believed in him because none of us have believed in him, right? It's, it's, it's a lame argument. That There's so much anger and heat, but there's no substance to what the Pharisees are saying. And look at what it says there in, in the next verse, in verse 49. It says, but this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. And even that was a phrase they used to refer to the crowds. They thought they were the business, like the Pharisees. They were like, we are at the top of the food chain, and these people, they don't know the law. These people are so ignorant. Thank God they have us to show them the way. I mean, this was as elitist as you could possibly get. That was the Pharisees. And they're basing their argument purely off of, well, we're the Pharisees, and they're not. And as another aside, that's an awesome thing throughout history. How many times it wasn't the elites that got it. It was the common people that understood, no, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And even in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, it wasn't many of you that were wise or noble by the world's standards, but it was Christ that worked in you. And even we see throughout history many times the religious elites trying to actually keep God's word, excuse me, my mic's right there, trying to keep God's word away from the people. That's one of the reasons we thank God for the Reformation, when they put the word of God in the languages of the people so everybody could read it and understand it. And again, we we see more irony here. We we see Nicodemus. They're saying none of the Pharisees have believed in him. And then Nicodemus is like, "Uh, well, actually, and, and starts asking some questions. And I think Nicodemus does become a follower of Jesus Christ. I think it's hard to say definitively where he is at this moment. Is he already, no, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to kind of keep it on the down low, or is he still working on it? I don't think there's enough here for us to say conclusively. But he throws out, "Um, wait, shouldn't we actually have a specific reason why we don't like Jesus? And again, they say, no, are you from Galilee? They, They jump to an ad hominem attack against Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Uh, a little awkward. Guess what happens when you search and see? Looks like several prophets came from Galilee. So again, the Pharisees, so much anger, so much confidence and cockiness, zero substance to their argument. It's, I would describe their argument here. It's all, it's all bluster. It's just, you know, a bunch of force that's not going anywhere. It reminds me of, you know, those Wind storms we get sometimes here in the Treasure Valley where there's a storm off in Oregon somewhere, but because we're in this valley, the, the storm and the pressure system just like shoots this wall of wind through the Treasure Valley. And you're just out, it's usually like late summer, you're just out minding your own business. Beautiful summer day and all of a sudden it's like, is this the apocalypse? Like you're looking at the clouds being like, Jesus, you're coming back? Because all of a sudden it's like 50 miles an hour of wind. Remember the first time when I was living here happened, I was in my office at of the front of my house, and I look out the front window, and there's like my neighbor holding on to his flag, like trying to get it down in, in his house. And then like three minutes later, it's done, it's over, it's, it's gone. It kicked up a bunch of dust, but in the end, it didn't really mean anything. That's like the Pharisees right here. So much bluster, so much anger, zero substance to what they are saying. And often that's what the opposition to Jesus really is. As Shakespeare said, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what the opposition to Jesus is. Point number three, stand firm in a blustery world. Stand firm in a blustery world. There is still opposition to Jesus in our world, in our culture right now, today. And I even think there's a storm brewing in our own culture here in the United States of America. There is a storm that is coming for the church. There's a storm coming for Christian institutions where it's going to be, if you actually believe what the Bible actually says and what Jesus actually teaches, that's not okay. It's not okay to believe that. It's not okay to act on that. But what is that gathering storm like? I mean, sometimes we look out and it can feel ominous. It can feel like a hurricane is coming. But what I want you to see, it's actually more like one of those Treasure Valley windstorms. And a thousand years from now, we're going to look back and say, man, all that the world had in their opposition to Christ, there was no substance to it. And the world, it wants to intimidate Christians and come across like, hey, we know our stuff. And you Christians, you don't know anything. Why? Well, because we know our stuff and you Christians don't know anything. That, that's, that's all the reasoning they can provide. There's so much anger in the world's opposition. Oh, you believe in creation? <sighs> what an ignoramus you are. When it's like, oh, okay, well, then why don't you tell me how the world started? Uh, You know, random chance and a Big Bang. Oh, okay, well, where'd this stuff come from that formed the Big Bang? I don't know, right? Even some of the leading intellectuals, the best ideas, they come up, well, you know, maybe aliens seeded life onto planet Earth, right? Really? They want to act like you're an idiot for believing in creation, and that's the best they can come up with? It's bluster. There's no substance to it. Oh, if you believe what the Bible says about sex and marriage, then you must be a bigot. And I find it ironic how many times I've been called the bigot by somebody, you know, typing on Facebook in all caps with several profanities. And I'm like, and I'm the one who's hateful here? That doesn't make sense. And oh, yeah, dissolving the family, that that really seems to be working wonders for our culture, right? There's so much bluster from the world and so little substance, If you're a Christian here I don't want you to be intimidated as you see opposition whether it's on a college campus whether it's at your workplace whether it's what you're reading in the news or the books coming out by the elite intellectuals of our day there's no reason to be intimidated because the message of Christ has never been defeated and people have been trying for 2,000 years and it never will be defeated Back in Bible times and in ancient times, cities that had a spring within the walls had a big advantage. Because even if the army came and laid siege to the city, you know, you're hanging up on the walls, waving at the enemy army, being like, hey, we got water as much as we need. You know, we got time to wait this out. And if we're Christians, we have a river, we have a spring of living water in our hearts. And if we look at the history of the church, not only has the message of Christ never been defeated because there's actually substance to it as opposed to the lies of the world, but the followers of Christ have never been defeated. And even we read throughout history stories of Christian martyrs and up until the end, even as they are dying, what is flowing out of them? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You want to talk about gentleness? People praying for the people that are killing them as they're being killed. Self-control. That's what's described Christians even up until the end. So let's not get worried. Let's not get overly concerned about our culture. Let's stay focused on Christ. He has everything we need. And no matter how crazy the world gets, he'll continue to have everything we need. And even you think about that story of the kids and The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Lucy took a lot of flack for what she was saying. But in the end, she was proven right. And as a Christian, you might take a lot of flack for saying, I believe in some guy that was born through a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and is going to come back on the clouds someday. You might take a lot of flack from that, but guess what? You're going to be proven right in the end. So let's keep our eyes on Christ and let's live out that reality Of a river of living water flowing from our hearts. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for truth in a broken world. God, we praise you for satisfaction in a broken world, God. A world that wants to offer us pleasure or success or popularity or whatever it may be that just always ends up empty. You're offering something real, God. You know us, God. Even you know our sin, but you want to forgive us. You you have everything that we need to match the the deepest longings of our hearts. God, you have the truth. So God, we praise you for that. And I pray, God, that if there is anyone here that has not forsaken the broken cisterns of this world or the emptiness of religious ritual and truly put their trust in Christ, that you would work on their hearts right now, God. God. And I pray for all of us that we would live out this reality, that we have a river of living water flowing from our hearts, and that we would see the proof of that in the way we live, in the fruit of the Spirit, God. And we do pray for our culture, God. We pray that many would turn from their sin and turn from the emptiness of this world and put their trust in Christ. And I pray that you would help your people to stand with strength, God, to stand with conviction in the face of the bluster of this world. And in the face of just the winds of our culture, God, that have no substance to them. When Jesus is the way, he is the truth. He is the life. God, exalt Jesus in our midst, in times of chaos in our world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.